Good morning. Welcome. Small but mighty today. (laughs) Today we're talking about the last lesson in the crucible with Christ. And we're on lesson 13, Christ in the crucible. So now we're down to it. Let's have a little prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we are grateful to be free to worship you on your holy day to be free to talk about your word and ideas about your word and who you are and to share them. We, we are so grateful for the freedom we are currently experiencing. We're grateful for the rain that's actually coming, has come down here for many places are in drought and we are grateful to have the rain that causes all things to grow and to live. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be here in our room, in our hearts, in all those who watch this today. And please open up our minds and our hearts to what you want us to know about the lesson and about our mission here on earth and what you would like us to know about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The memory text for today is... And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I don't know if any of you have been in a long-term or very important relationship when that person is suddenly gone out of your life, be it your spouse, be it your parent. I imagine most of us have been touched with that in some way. And to be bonded to somebody, to be in close heart with, with somebody, is a wonderful experience. But to have that ripped away <laughs> is very, very difficult to process, to deal with. And here's Jesus. Imagine, uh, we're told by Ellen White, one of the founders of our church, that the only God we've ever really interacted with is Jesus. The one we know as Jesus was actually the God that was on Mount Sinai, was actually the one that we've ever only dealt with. The Holy Spirit's in our heart, but to actually interact and see, this is the only part of God we've ever seen. So many people think the New Testament and Old Testament are good cop, bad cop, (laughs) so to speak. God, the baddie, do this, kill them, and Jesus the good guy. But they're actually one and the same. And so part of when you study the Bible, part of it is looking for how can this be the same God? Why is he behaving this way? And one of the things I uh, this lesson talks about, and of course it's in the title, The Crucible. I don't know if any of you know what a, a crucible is. I, I didn't. I had to look it up. <laughs> and basically, it's a ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances may be melted or subjected to very high temperatures. Or, a situation that we are more familiar with, a situation of severe trial, (laughs) or in which something, different elements interact leading to the creation of something new. Now I figured since most of us aren't that familiar with crucibles, I'm not, I'm not a metallurgist or anything, I, I want to rethink, put this perspective, in, because now we're down to the crucifixion, the real, what we consider the crucible of Christ. So I, to me, 
we're in a war, right? And so this is all about God suffering in the trenches with us. I'm not a military person, but I know military people. And they call themselves a band of brothers because they're in the trenches together. And nothing makes them more close than having faced life and death experiences together in the trenches. So when I thought of it that way, the, uh, they, the veterans get together and they're, they still, after years, feel bonded to each other because of their experience, their shared experiences. So I began to think of me. I haven't been in the military. I have been through some serious times in my life. But I would say I'm part of a band of sisters <laughs> because I'm a nurse. And there's a bug bugging me here, sorry. <laughs> I'm being bugged. <laughs> um, there's a, a band of sisters. I'm, I'm a nurse, and so we're in the trenches. You never see the best side of people when you're taking care of them. You know, the people aren't the nicest or prettiest or anything when they're sick as dogs in the hospital. And I worked ICU and ER, and, you know, you really felt like you're in the trenches. Snow would come, you're working day and night, you know, to cover for the shift. You're, you're in the trenches, and, and that bonds the nurses in us. <laughs> so I'm part of the band of sisters. And I'm understanding this better through these analogies than a crucible, because I'm not too familiar with crucibles. So we're, I, I look at this as the one cancer cell in the universe, what I refer to as the prisoner of war camp, <laughs> because we're prisoners here, and we're in war. And the only we would have had absolutely no escape had it not been for Jesus doing what he did. He attended to his mission. And today I'd really like to focus on mission, his mission and ours. So... The Bible, the uh, quarterly says, whenever we look at the issue of suffering, the question comes, how did sin and suffering first arise? I think most of us realize that Satan came up with it all by himself. The interesting thing to think about is God, knowing everything ahead of time, created Satan, knowing he would do that, and created us, knowing we would follow him, follow Satan into this misery. But he did it anyway. So people, I have a very close relative of mine who blames God for that. If there is a God and he made this world, then I want nothing to do with him because <laughs> this is an awful place and blames God for this awful place. But, but we... Um, it was never I, intended to be an awful place. No, but God knew ahead of time. So if you were going to think about creating a child and you knew it was going to go bad and become Hitler or something like that, would you just not have the child? No one would know. God would say, I'm not going to make this one because he's going to turn bad. I'm not going to make them because they're going to turn bad. I'll only make good ones because I know ahead of time who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. So I'll just quietly not have the bad ones. He could have, couldn't he? He could have done that, couldn't he? I mean, there, there isn't any reason he couldn't have done that. We wouldn't have known. Angels wouldn't have known. He could just not make the bad ones. But that would have taken away the freedom element. Exactly. What people don't, what people blame God for is the very thing I thank God for. Yeah. Yes. Because we were made truly free. And the evidence that he would go ahead and make beings that he knew would just pain him <laughs> shows that he truly values our freedom. 
He's not just quietly wiping out the bad people. He's allowing us to make our choices, have our consequences, but it had a huge consequence to him. I think in terms that are different maybe than some people, I think the difference between us and ants, for example, little ants that creep around, we can step on them easily, we can poison them easily, and we do because we don't want ants in our food or our houses or anything like that. What what would it be like to become an ant? The whole ant population is going to die if I don't become an ant. It's for you to become an ant, live like an ant, die an excruciating death of an ant, and then be an ant forever and ever and ever and ever. Think about that difference. Would we do that for these little ants? Well, what is the difference between us and an ant versus, I should go like this, between us and an ant and us and and God? He created this vast universe, and if you don't know how vast it is, the Webb Telescope is busily out there. James Webb Space Telescope officially is out there telling us what we're missing out on. In one direction, it's found galaxies 95 billion light years away. So try to, and that's just what we've been able to find, much less what's out there even beyond. So here's a God who, according to John 1, says he created everything. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. The sort of communication part of God, if you will. Light takes, a hundred and light travels 186,000 miles per Second, per second. In this amount of time, 1,001, it can go 186,000 miles. So how far would would light travel to be 9.5 billion light years away? Think about that. And that's in one direction. Here's the earth. It's looking in one direction. That's not this direction, that direction, or this direction. In every direction, that's as far as we could see, and that's not the end of it, I'm sure. That's just as our limited capabilities can see. So in every direction, we can see 9.5 billion light years away, we can still see galaxies. So this being we're talking about, being in the crucible with us, who made all of this and runs it, so to speak, amazed the angels, and Satan too, by coming to this one little cancer cell in the universe, one little cancer cell, and becoming one of us. Not only becoming one of us, but allowing us to kill him. And then resurrect and be a human the rest of his life. Eternity. So, that boggled my mind. Because eternity is a long time, and... This universe is a huge universe. So imagine this, this vast universe being run by the being who saved us. This one little planet, he could say, oh, well, they'll just kill each other. And really, we would snuff ourselves out, I think. I really believe that God will come just before we would kill ourselves. Because at that point, Satan would have no excuse to say, well, if you hadn't interfered, I could have pulled it together. Well, when we're on the brink, and the Bible does say, accuses Satan of destroying his land and killing his people, also making the world a desert. 
So it has to get pretty bad, right, to get to that point? To the point where we would have snuffed ourselves out. Well, if God left us alone, we would have just snuffed ourselves out and all all's good. But he has the whole universe to look at. He has to figure out what is going to make sense to all my creation, because they're all free too. So going to Sunday, we'll talk about the, a little bit about the early days. The Bible is pretty um, you know, quiet about the early days, doesn't say a whole lot. But it does say, what, he was born in poverty. We know that because he was born in a stable. He was the parents as a gift, you know, as a sacrifice when they have their child dedicated. They have brought the two doves or two baby pigeons. That was the gift the poor gave, the sacrifice they gave. And so that was the sacrifice that was given for him. So we know he was poor. So he can identify with us poor when we're poor. We also know that he was his life was in jeopardy from the moment he was born. Uh, that Herod tried to kill him, but the angels warned him, and the parents took note and did what they were supposed to. And even in the night, they packed up, moved out, taking the gift of the Magi with them to live on in Egypt, where they stayed until that Herod was gone. So this this um, also mentions, the Sabbath school mentions that you have to consider, too, that he was born not only poor, and life in jeopardy, but he grew up in Nazareth, which the Bible says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It reminds me of my high school. When I was, I went to boarding school one year, but then my parents couldn't afford it the next year, so I went to a day high school, and people said, oh, that's, you know, that's awful, it's full of drugs, it's full of this, it's full of that. So you go to the high school, my parents, I'm sure, hoped that I didn't go in that direction, and I am grateful that I didn't. My my philosophy on that is you can find whatever you're looking for wherever you go, <laughs> good or bad. So Jesus was born in Nazareth, but that didn't mean he had to be like Nazareth. But that kind of threw a lot of people. You'll notice when he was when he was circulating, people said, "Well, he can't be the Messiah. He's from Nazareth." And they didn't. No one ever seemed to clarify to them that he wasn't born there. So they always thought he was not the Messiah. The Pharisees did because no one, you know, look in the prophets. They said to to Zechariah, not to Zechariah, to Nicodemus, when he was trying to intervene within the Sanhedrin to keep them from killing him. Um, they said, "Well." You know, has look in the prophets. You know, you'll have, no one ever comes from Nazareth. No one comes from Galilee. That's the Messiah. Now, Brenda, I think it makes the miracle more distinct. And even in our situations that we have, the worse our crisis, the most impossible that it may look. Mm-hmm. It makes when God God does deliver. It makes the miracle more distinct that it was God and not us. Red Sea moments, kind of like. Red Sea, yeah. I'm there. I know. (laughs) So, and I think we've all sort of been there. You know, we've all been, I call them personal tsunamis. When everything, all at one time. I mean, I remember one time I was trying to buy a house. I had a car wreck and I lost my job all in like one week. 
And it was no, no fault of my own. They were just moving away from field case management, which I was doing at that time, and there wasn't any other office I could go to. So here I am in the middle of buying a house and losing my job and had a car wreck. I'm like, <laughs> and there's, that's just one tiny episode in my life where you face all of these things at one time. I, and that's why I call them personal tsunamis. It feels like, poosh, you know, it, it knocks you over. And so this is one of the things I want to, emphasize today that we have somebody we can trust this being that created the whole universe came to save us and according to ellen white he would have come if only one of us for only one of us he would have done the same thing because why that's his nature huh but the lesson wants to talk about the difficulty too and adding to this numerous list of difficulties he's faced when he came here was that he was not sensitized to sin like we are. We grow up, that's all we know. We know fear, we know anger, we know, you know, hurt. We know everything about sin. And the more you're around it, the less it's, you know, noticeable because it's, you know, part of the day. I mean, it's bad, but it's here and it's what we live with. Well, that wasn't the case with Jesus. He knew all about what he was missing out on in heaven. And he came here. And then he had to live among sinful beings, you know, who were just awful. And how it must have hurt his bruises, wounded his pure heart, you know. So I want you to think about that. I'm, I'm leaving you little crumbs <laughs> to where we're going here. Think about how that must have been difficult for him. So he's faced the same things. The Bible says he's faced what we've faced, he's faced. He understands. He's in the trenches with us. God came to be in the trenches with us. We can trust that, God. I want to go to Monday's lesson, which now goes from his childhood to despised and rejected of men. I want to start by saying, how many people here like perfect people? <laughs> we don't know any. Well, you don't know any. But you- which is probably true, but there are people who act like and think they are. <laughs> and I would say, um, you know, do we enjoy being around perfect people? Because they're all that and because they're so perfect. <laughs> perfect. Do you have the little cat in there? Perfect. <laughs> So what do we... Means they're not perfect. That's right, that's right. And it means I'm not, that's for sure, if I'm like... Meow. <laughs> and they never felt to tell us how imperfect we are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, actually, it's easier to be around imperfect people because they're one of us. <laughs> I tell people, if my house is a mess and you come over, you'll, you'll feel good because either you'll feel right at home or you'll feel superior. <laughs> but so here's Jesus, this perfect being in a terrible place called Nazareth, trying to do what he can to make things better for people. But people then have this same reaction. And I wonder if we would have any different reaction to Jesus than that. Because he's so perfect. You know, he makes us feel the imperfection. You know, makes us feel how low we are. And by contrast, we, that makes you want to sort of push away from perfect people, doesn't it? Well, are we any different than the Pharisees? That's another thing I want to say. How would we truly have reacted to Jesus? 
in their day, in Jesus' day, they thought we wouldn't have behaved like the, the, the priests of old and stuff who killed the prophets, and that's not us. We wouldn't do that. While they're busily doing the same thing. Would we do the same thing? Would we push him away? Or maybe what do we do? We, we uh, jealousy, we're jealous, or we're undermining, or gossiping. What do we do to people who are too perfect that we get jealous of? I mean, in our, in, I'm saying we collectively. I'm not pointing out you specifically. <laughs> She's a beautiful person. But I'm just saying, how would we really treat Jesus? Well, it's no surprise that, that people in Jesus' time were felt threatened, particularly the Pharisees. You know, they had their institution. They thought they were right. They thought he was wrong, and they were going to put him in his place. So here's a frustration of Jesus. How do you deal with these people who are pushing you away? You can hear his frustration. I mean, he does have the frustration. He's not like, okay, everything's wonderful. John eight forty three to 45 says, why is my language not clear to you? <laughs> this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. And then he talks about their father, the devil, and they're like, my father's Abraham. No, not really. Matthew seventeen seventeen, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? <laughs> this is our Savior <laughs> talking about the reaction he's getting from the people who should have been leading the charge on the mission. Matthew twenty three thirty seven says, I would gather you as a, as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings. How many of you ever seen that in chickens? I've seen, well, pictures of ones and with birds holding their little babies under their wings, trying to protect them. But, but the people were not willing. You were not willing. Can we relate to that frustration? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John three thirty three and 5, uh, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And later it says no one can enter the kingdom of God. Well, I grew up thinking that meant you can't go to heaven, you know. But seeing is a different thing. Knowing, understanding, perceiving, focusing. I think of it in terms of spiritual binoculars, if you would. If Each person has to, you know, if someone hands binoculars off to each other to look at something, everybody's going you know, has to get it to their own perspective and get what they want to see. Well, if you refuse to focus your binoculars, what are you going to see? I just went whale watching and loved it up in Cape Cod and got my one of my bucket list things, see live whales, and they were everywhere. It was wonderful. And one of the moms, mom humpbacks, got up out in the air and smashed down with a loud thump and all that. Everybody frantically trying to get their cameras and their binoculars and and then up and down really quick. So people were complaining they got pictures of the water. Because <laughs> 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 it was up, it was down. But here you are trying to, f- if you don't bother to focus, you won't see. If the Holy Spirit doesn't fill your heart and you don't let the Holy Spirit focus you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. According to the Bible, it's foolishness. Yes? Yeah, that's so true. The Bible says, you know, focus on whatsoever things are pure and of good report and good. I mean, we could look at all kinds of bad things on people and then we're going to 
focus on problems, and that's going to be our life mission is to heal people from their problems. But if we focus on the good and try to lift each other up, I'm sure Jesus tried to lift each other up. He did get frustrated at times with people, but I think you know that's the key is what you're talking about is keep our focus on the good things in life and to lift each other up. Look for the good in each other. Look for the good. Half empty, half full, you know. And I know we all know people on either end of that equation. Yeah, Brenda? You were saying about how the people, um, you know, rejected, that the people of the church rejected him. And so... Well, the leaders primarily, I, I, I would say. I can, touch, I can just touch on what that felt like when I was going through my divorce. All of our friends left us. And um, so I could see... You have a tendency to want to take up and want to go around and defend your character. But I see Jesus and how he didn't go around and defend his character and how it'll all play out. It'll all play out in the end and just focus on Jesus and keep your eyes fixed on him. And how I, I, I see my, what I went through, but I think of Jesus. He made all of us. Us ants. <laughs> and yeah, and he had to. I mean, I can't even imagine the rejection that, you know, that was in his heart because he loves all of us, even the ones that don't love him. And the Pharisees, their their lies were truth to them, and the truth was lies to them. It's just. And you see it today, too. You see it today. That's, so that comes kind of under our mission. Christ and his mission, us and our mission. I want to focus on those two things. So part of our mission is we have to see clearly before we understand who the enemy really is, <laughs> what they're up to, what's true, what's not true. It's a very confusing world, and I think this past couple of years made it even more confusing than it's ever been. You get information from everywhere claiming to be authorities on everything. Is it true? How do we know? We're not authorities on anything. And so partly this is a binocular time. <laughs> you know, let's focus our binoculars. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if we start there and work our way from what Jesus did and how he, what he said and how we uh, inter- interact with him, then we're on a safe trail. The Bible's our guide. It's our lamp. As a nurse and probably as a mother and even as a human being, my tendency is to give advice. <laughs> and as I'm now 68 years old, I realize how often that advice is not taken. Although I mean well, and surely they would do better if they took my advice. <laughs> I'm to the point where my grandmother was when she was old. She says, I don't give, I've wanted some advice. She says, oh, I, I've decided not to give advice anymore because the wise don't need it and the fools won't heed it. <laughs> I saw a slogan on a, on a cup that says, yes, I'm a nurse. No, I don't want to look at it. <laughs> that's what everybody, your nurse, oh, what about this? I'm like, no. <laughs> I just find it amazing that Jesus came to our little tiny bit of the Milky Way to create a cure for us. So the the lesson goes on. Let me jump back to this, keep myself on track here. 
There, we're talking about uh, the things, other things he faced as an adult that were difficult for him, trials, crucibles, if you will. Um, the, well, this says Matthew twelve twenty two to 24, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who's both blind and mute, uh, which showed that he had the power to do that, should have been interesting to them, the Pharisees and so on. The crowd wanted to kill him, throwing him off a hill when he pointed out that they were the very ones <laughs> that were doing the bad things to, to uh, God. The crowd wanted to throw him off a hill, but he walked right through them and left. How is that even possible? And then in John eight fifty eight and 59, he hid himself and walked away from the temple grounds from people who were trying to stone him because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. So he walked a thin line. I mean, it's, he, he only lasted 33 and a half years. Both my children are older than he was. <laughs> when I think of, I have a 38-year-old daughter, and five years ago would have been when I think of if she had died five years ago, that's not much of a of a mission start, is it? <laughs> so he had a lot to accomplish in this time. He was busily trying to keep from being killed. Whenever people don't like what you say, they also seem to don't like you. And they certainly showed that. Oh, one minute they're like all oh, fawning over his words. Isn't this amazing? I've never heard anything like this. And then I'm going to kill you in just like a sentence. You know, they would switch from one thing to another. I also find it interesting when uh, in, I think it's John, where it says uh, the people didn't have to even tell him about themselves because he knew all men. He knew what was in a person, just like the woman at the well. He, you've been married five times. The man you're living with now isn't your husband. You know, he, he knew everybody's heart. So go through life and, and know what everybody's sort of thinking, <laughs> you know, that they want to kill you. And it's bad enough that we see people's reaction. But on the other hand, what if we could see that they were wanting to, us to kill us? <laughs> he, could, he could sense what people's attitudes and what they were thinking. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I was going to say, it's amazing to see how he handled the situations he was in. That people really did want to kill him, and then even when he was on the cross, he asked the Father to forgive them because they really didn't know what they were doing. They, mm -hmm. And a lot of people sincerely, like you said, they think their, their truth is the lies, and the lies are the truth, but they just don't know any better. Right. And somehow we try to get through to people, but some people just don't get it. Yeah. So our binoculars, we have to understand that our brothers and sisters and even the worst person in the world is still, in God's eyes, a bad brother to us, you know, but he's still a brother. You know, we, um, we need to see them differently. We need this part of our mission is to understand that even, even the worst people are still his child. They're people who are going to be lost unless something happens. You know, when really bad things have happened to me, God showed me a way to pray for them. Um, that helped me to heal and also to um, take power of the Holy Spirit and pray for that person. I mean, pray. We don't, don't know we pray enough. I mean, we say we're going to pray. Yeah, I'll pray for your surgery. I'll pray for your cancer. I'll pray for this and that. But do we really? Or even enemies. Do we pray for our enemies like the Bible says we should? This is part of our mission statement. <laughs> That's part of our mission so Jesus was constantly being misunderstood, rejected, and hated by people. The people he came to save, he dropped down from the great universe where everything was happiness and purity and adored, and came here 
where he could read everybody's thoughts and knew everybody and knew exactly what they were up to, but he couldn't force them to think otherwise. He just had to be himself. And like Brenda was saying earlier, what do you do when people be, you know, push away from you and, and claim all things about you that may or may not be true? All you can do is be yourself. The hardest thing is not to be drawn into their way of doing things. That is truly hard because it's tempting when someone treats you one way to turn around, treat them back. You know, well, they deserve this. The hard thing is to treat them the way they don't deserve. But that's the way Jesus treated us. And the only way we can do that is like what you're saying, is to pray for them and allow the Holy Spirit to do that transformation in us because that prayer changes us. I mean, they are going to be the way that they're going to be. But it's my reaction and my prayers is that, that God is changing me to be able to look at them with pity. Yeah. Pity and I want them. Well, what about love your enemies? Not just pity, but love your enemies. Yeah, that's supernatural. <laughs> so there's where prayer comes in. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to love our enemies. That's part of our mission. Jesus. Explain that love. That's the love, I think, from understanding that there but for the grace of God would go you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They are like me. But nobody has, they haven't found, they haven't gotten their binoculars focused. They're dying. Like, for example, you know, for people you love specifically, and you're trying to help and they won't be helped. To me, if you can compare it to you being a boat and them being drowning in the water, and you're reaching down for them, and every time you, come on, hold my hand, hold my hand, and then they slap your hand away. Every, you're the only thing that could save them out of this. But they slap your hand away, or worse. You throw things, hang on to this, I'll pull you in. And finally, they stop slapping and sink down and drown. It's the compassion for people who are don't get it for people who are dying by their own choice, by lack of focus, and by not allowing Jesus to come into their hearts. And I think that's where the we lack compassion. We have pity sometimes, but we, we don't necessarily have love for our enemies, and we don't have compassion. But I think that's what we're expected to do, not because we're forced to, but because we realize there, but for the grace of God, go, I, I've, I've got my, you know, I've got the focus. The Holy Spirit is showing me the way out of this misery. They haven't let the Holy Spirit in yet. And every time you try to reach for them, they're slapping your hand away till they drown, you know. Their choice, whether to help, get the help or listen to you or anything or not. You can't make them do anything, but they. your job is not what they do. Your job is what you do. And, on, and in, the, when the new, in the new church called The Way, I guess when the new church was getting together, the response that people had to the new church was, Behold how they love one another. And that stands out in this world. Love. I don't know if any of you saw the movie The End of the Spear. It was based on a true story of some missionaries, not Adventist missionaries, but missionaries, men, who wanted to go and convert this tribe and 
somewhere. And so you can see I, the details aren't my, <laughs> my, my forte. Somewhere, huh? The Amazon. There you go. Ken, Ken knows the details. He's my part that knows the details for me. <laughs> and, um, so the men went and they were all killed by this tribe. Every one of them killed before they had a chance to do or anything. These people, they didn't speak their language. They didn't bring anyone with them who spoke their language. They were very superstitious people. Um, one of the, one of the girls of the tribe wandered away and she, uh, from the tribe and got in with some white people. Long story. But anyway, the wives, what did they do? They went to the same tribe with this girl who, who left the, the, uh, tribe and who could speak their language. And so she, they came to minister uh, to these people who had, very people who had killed their husbands. The wives went. And, they, and the, the actual tribe thought that the girl they brought was a ghost. Because <laughs> they thought, surely this, this tribe person has been killed. You know, she's gone, she's never coming back, but here they bring her. So they were very suspicious at first. But then they finally believed her. <laughs> Of course, I think the white people coming in brought them polio. <laughs> so the women helped them to get over the polio and so on. But I use this as an example of would you go to a bunch of people who just, who killed your family member with a care for helping them find a way out of this? So the name of, and the, and I think the thing that stands out to me is the way they presented it to him. When Jesus was speared, he didn't spear back. Because that's the language they understood. They were no old people in the group. They were all busy killing other tribe members, were killing each other back and forth, and there were no old people. That's all they understood was they kill you, you kill them, Hatfields and McCoys, but in the jungle. And so uh, these people came to love these people who killed their husbands. I want to read a little uh, thing. From Ellen White, Selected Messages, Book 3, page 129, which says, and it's in our Sabbath school lesson, we've all felt the sting of rejection. I think pretty much see the heads nodding. <laughs> our, maybe our pain was similar to Christ and that it was unselfish. Uh, we were pained, but not because we were rejected, but because of what the rejection would mean to the one who was rejecting us. Or perhaps someone we care about who refuses to accept salvation in Christ. Um, imagine how it must have felt to be Jesus, who was fully aware that he, what, he was, what he was to face in order to save them, and also fully aware of the consequence of rejection. And so Ellen White says it was because of his innocence that Christ felt so keenly the assaults of Satan. So I'm going to talk about feeling of Jesus. We all, I think, pretty much feel, figure God has foreknowledge. To him, he's outside of time. It's like he's read the whole book. To us, we've read this part, and this, the part we've read is all we know, but he's read the whole thing, and he can kind of come to any part of it he wants. But does, I want to think about for a minute, did, does, did Jesus or did God have for-feeling? Not just for-knowledge, but for-feeling. Because when, when something bad happens to us, that's when we start feeling bad. But I would suggest that God knew what was going to happen, he recognized what was going to happen, and perhaps he felt what was going to happen. Even before he did it, he, he already felt the pain of what was going to happen. The Bible talks about, for example, with the flood. Just before the flood, the Bible says, he saw that all the thoughts of men were evil continually. 
and his heart, he regretted having made man, and his heart was filled with pain. His heart was filled with pain. This is God we're talking about. So uh, Sodom was the same thing. The cry of miseries come up to me. I've come down to see if it's how bad it really is. I think God's heart may have been in pain for eternity over this, both before and after. He, he feels the rejection and the effort and the sacrifice he made. Um, Tuesday, Jesus in Gethsemane. So we're now coming down to it. <laughs> we're getting through his life. He didn't. So th- things were never easy. I think is the picture it's plays. Um, he this, you know, he's in the trenches going through all this, and it's coming down to the last battle. Um, that the Sabbath school lesson talks about how do we what did he have to go through in, in Gethsemane as part of his suffering, and um, we see Matthew twenty six. 38, 39, when Jesus asking not to go through this, but he would if it was his father's will. Uh, Jesus, in Mark 14, 36, 33 to 36, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled, and he said, told his disciples he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then in Luke 22, 41 to 44, the angel had to come and strengthen him because he was sweating drops of blood. Ellen White says, he went a little distant from him, not so far, and this is in your Sabbath school lesson, not so far, but that they, the disciples there could both see and hear him, went that far away, fell prostrate on the ground. He felt that by sin he was being separated from his father's eternity with somebody, and then all of a sudden you can't, they're not there with you anymore. You're suffering this alone. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it. This agony, he must not exert his divine power to escape. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. The consequences of man's sin. Uh, Listen to that. He must suffer the consequences of man's sin. Sometimes people think that every single sin of every single person was laid on him, but he suffered the consequences, which is withdrawal from of God, mostly, and then all the pain and suffering that happens because of that. So this is the agony he must not exert his divine power to escape. As a man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. As a man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. And we'll talk about that shortly. Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that which he had ever stood before. His suffering can best be described in the words of the prophet, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that's my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. That's in Zechariah. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. Hitherto he had been as an intercessor for others. Now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. But he didn't have one. (laughs) So I want to look for a minute, just a quick, we cover this a lot in the Sabbath school, and and I just want to say... um, talk about is there a difference between God's anger and wrath in the Bible. And so we may not have time to go through all that, but Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God, and I will, I will just summarize it um, rather than go through the details. Um, I have seven verses here, and the first one is Romans 1, which was wrath, God gave them over. He just let them, you know, they, he couldn't change their course. They, they wouldn't change, so he just had to let them go because there was nothing in them that would change back. 
And uh, the one Second Kings 24.20, things that happened to Jerusalem and Judah, in the end he thrust them from his presence. So that's anger, using the word anger, but thrust them from his presence. Again, pushing, you know, just I can't cover, I can't help you if you're going to be this way. Um, the third verse that I said was Isaiah 42, 24 and 25. Um, who handed Israel Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunder, plunders? Was it not the Lord against whom we've sinned? Um, so they still didn't learn, though he handed them over. They, and they all God had to do, you have to consider that Israel was like a sitting duck, <laughs> surrounded by enemies, strong enemies on every side. The only thing God ever had to do was remove his protection. And they were... They, somebody was going to come and get him. He didn't have to do anything active. He, he is portrayed as doing some things active, but mostly you'll see that he pushed him away. He no longer watches over him. Um, Lamentations 4, 11 to 16. Um, he's given full vent to his wrath and poured out his fe- full fierce anger because of the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the priests. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches out for them. This is a description of anger and wrath. And five would be Psalm seventy-eight, fifty-nine to thirty to sixty-one. He rejected Israel completely. <laughs> There's another one that's furious that uses furious, and then wrath uh, in Jeremiah. He all their captors held them fast, refusing to let them go. So this this wrath is defending his people who are being kept. By he, he allowed them to be taken, but they wouldn't let the people go. So he had to actively get them back. So he took that wrath and actually like, um, you know, you save these prisoners from the prisoner of war camp. I'm going in. And then number seven is Zephaniah 118. Neither their silver or gold will be able to save him. The Lord's wrath by the fire of his jealousy, the whole world earth will be consumed and he'll make a sudden end to all those on earth. So when you look at these various things, it almost seems interchangeable. There's some of it where he takes an active part, like retrieving people. There's some of it where, and, and coming at the end of time, where people can't stand in his presence and they're consumed by the brightness of his coming, the Bible says. Some of it's more the result of what we decide. Most of it's the result of what we decide. And most of it is kind of letting you have, have your way, so to speak. Wednesday, we talk about the crucified God. Now we're right down to it. We don't have crucifixion in America, but imagine if we did. Violent, naked crucifixion in public. Imagine if we did. For anything the government decided you'd done wrong or was inappropriate, we think, oh, we'll go to jail. Even if you're killed, you're killed nicely, you know, with an injection or something like that, maybe. But me being a nurse, I wanted to look into this crucifixion stuff because I don't know how many of you have done this. I hadn't really known what crucifixion was like. You hear it all your life. Let me just read a little bit of, I found an article called A Physician's View of the Crucifixion of Jesus Christ by Dr. C. Truman Davis. As I wanted a... a um, Description of the crucifixion. I mean, really, what are we talking about? What did Christ go through for us? And it's kind of long, so I won't go through the whole thing, but it's a little bit like a postmortem, you know, with a final cause of death kind of thing. 
and they describe, basically he describes that in those days, you, the prisoner, the part that goes up and down on the cross stays in place. You, what they're carrying is the cross piece, and it's 110 pounds. And he goes through this process of, the, and the prisoner has to carry that 110 pounds from where he's tried over there to where he's going to be used. Um, then he goes through the details of they don't put it in their hands because that body wouldn't, it would just come through the hands. The hand's not strong enough. So they would put this big square iron nail right in your, between your ulna and your radius right here, where is a very tender nerve. Um, and they would do that to both. And then they would take the f- left foot and put it behind the other one and nail at the, at the ankle there right between the feet. Um, but he talks about the various things he had to go through, being hit by all these uh, guards and stuff who, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to go, hey, you know, <laughs> they're going to lay into him by hit and spit on them. And it goes through all these details. It talks about the phenomenon of, they call it hematidrosis or bleeding sweat. And they, he points out that is possible. And, um, I mean, to people, it's possible if they're in enough trauma. And it talks about, the, of course, the whipping, which has a metal ball at the end. And they eventually gets to the point, he's very descriptive <laughs> about how all that goes. But it starts with a bruise, ends up with, with strips of skin hang, tissue hanging off, basically a, a totally exposed raw back and so on. And then he talks about... The robe they put on and they put the crown on and the robe would have stuck to him, you know, all that bleeding. And then they pretend it hit him and all this kind of thing. And then when they pulled the robe back off, it would all that was stuck to him would have pulled off. Um, it's, it's really too much to, to read. Um, and so you, you get the idea that this isn't a, a, this is more than I thought. Even, you know, when you look at it forensically, the um, and it talks about how hard it is to to be on the cross because you can breathe in apparently but you can't breathe out just the way the muscles are hung there and so you're basically partly suffocating. You're he was in shock. He hadn't eaten, drank. He'd lost all this fluid and so on. And he was very near death, but he managed to say those seven last words: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Um. He put in there, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. We know that um, from the perspective of people here, we put punctuation in. Punctuation wasn't present in the when, it, when this was written. So people artificially put a comma in. We believe it says, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. Not I say unto thee, today you will be with me in paradise, which is what it's taken. And the, and the reason, just briefly, that he couldn't have been saying that you could be with me today in paradise is because he wasn't in paradise that day. <laughs> he was, in fact, he said to Mary when he when he was resurrected on Sunday morning that uh, don't hang on to me. I haven't yet been to my father, and so even Christ wasn't in paradise that day. So neither could he have been with Christ in paradise that day. There's no par- there was no comma. So we've just. Somebody chose to put a comma where they wanted to put it to make make what they thought was right, right. But it really was, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise, which is more accurate since he will be with him in paradise, but not that day because Jesus wasn't even there that day. 
So he managed to say these words. He said, woman, behold thy son to, to John, I mean about John and John, behold your mother. My God, why have you forsaken me? Talks about what it did to his heart. <laughs> Apparently the, the work of the heart is so difficult that it starts building up fluid inside the pericardial sac, which is the covering of the heart, until it compresses the heart and it can't work <laughs> very much because the fluid is holding it in. Um, and so he quotes Psalm 20 seconds, 22nd Psalm 14 verse. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. So then it talks about him, uh, you know, taking little gulps of air and finally says it's finished. Um, he says, I think he could barely talk by then. And father into my, thy hands, I commit my spirit. And then, um, you know, in order to, to keep the Sabbath, the Jews wanted him off the cross. So that was another thing where they usually break their legs because they haven't died that fast. But Jesus had already died, so they poked a spear basically right into his heart. And the Bible talks about, and blood and water came out, showing that, according to this doctor, he died of um, heart failure. And we say also a broken heart. <laughs> due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. And so that was one of the harshest punishments anyone can mete out. People are cruel when they are when nothing stops them. Read the Fox's Book of Martyrs if you want to be horrified by what people can do. Well, you don't need that even. You just look at the news, you know. The one thing that really struck me before we go is that Matthew 27:51 says you know, it was dark that day. That was another thing that happened. Um, the t- curtains were t- torn from top to bottom. And also, the earthquake happened that uh, what caused a lot of holy people to come alive. Well, then I read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one um, and 2, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We all pretty much hear about that. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs broke open. Then bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. But verse 53 says, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. I'm thinking, so they came back to life when he died, but they didn't come out of their tombs until he was resurrected? (laughs) I found that really interesting. (laughs) I figure, you know, this is pure speculation that some angel must have been in there with them while they were in their tomb <laughs> waiting and explained the deal to them. But they came out afterwards. Um, and quickly, the one thing I probably object the most to in the Sabbath school lesson is um, on this uh, Wednesday was Jesus on the cross suffered a righteous God's righteous indignation against sin, the sins of the whole world. So I want to just consider that statement. What is the real con- what is the real punishment for sin? Is it God? Or is it consequences? The bad consequences, the reason that sin is it's harmful. But it's also separation from God. The Bible says in, in Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> God was withdrawing from Jesus to enable him to die. If God is the source of life and he's around and he's in Jesus, Jesus couldn't die and he needed to so that he had to push away like he has to from all sinners. 
And so Jesus was suffering that. But actually on the cross, my feeling in and what I read says that he had the worst Satan could do. <laughs> Satan worked through people to kill Christ. This wasn't God killing Christ. The Bible predicts that we would misinterpret this, this event. And yes, it has been misinterpreted repeatedly in the, in the church. In Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, it says, Surely he took up our infirmities. He took our infirmities, carried our sorrow. I think we've covered that, a part of his mission. Yet, we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. We considered that. And that's taught repeatedly in the churches. We considered him, and the Bible prophesies in Isaiah that we will do this very thing that we're doing. We considered him stricken by God, smitten and affected by him and afflicted. But the next thing says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone away, have gone astray, and each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, or I would say the sin condition of us all. So I, I wanted to make sure I covered that because I, I just think that we look at the crucifixion and as Satan can turn us to think of God as inflicting this on his son, he's one. We need to think that Satan is doing his worst to God and God is letting him. <laughs> and to do that, he had to withdraw from Jesus. And Jesus had to face this all by himself. Um, so what about our mission? Our mission we've covered in various times through what we've been talking about today. Christ came to create a cure. He let Satan and us do our worst. Our, we killed the one who made us. He did that so that he could create the anti-venom <laughs> with which we're afflicted. He took on the, the, the poison and created the anti-venom. Or if you think in computer terms, created the antiviral software that fixes our computer virus, the thing that's destroying our computer. There's a lot of different ways to look at this, but he created the cure. So what is what does Satan do now? Is he like, oh, you know, um, I got enough pagans. I don't really need to bother these Christians, you know. <laughs> where would you, where would Satan be? And he, he wouldn't care about the pagans because they're all lost, he figures. Let's focus on the church members. You know, many times the Bible, it's the, it's, the, it's the people in church were filled with the demon. While they were there in the temple, all of a sudden there was a demon. And so you know that Satan is with the, he's right in there with the church leaders. So my thing about our mission to, to start off with is it's not enough to believe God is good. It's not enough to believe he created the cure. And I think we pretty much all here believe that he created the thing that fixes us. If Satan can just separate you from God and keep you from taking the cure, he wins and you lose the eternal life in a vast, sinless universe. So how do you take the cure? This is the last thing and we'll close. Remain watchful by praying and reading the Bible every day, but read it too. Not just read it, because you can read it and get all the wrong impressions because you're basically skimming through and you're not really thinking about it. You're just doing your, your reading for the year. Yay. Read it to really find the puzzle pieces. 
It's like a huge jigsaw puzzle. God put pieces in here and there. Find the pieces. If you take one piece and run off with it, like make a doctrine out of that one piece, you're only, it's like doing that on one piece of a jigsaw puzzle. He wants you to really look for the pieces and things that actually apply to each other. Put it together and only then do you see a full picture of what it, what a doctrine or a belief should be. Because you can read through the Bible and get a terribly wrong impression of God. I I interact with people a lot that look that way. Um, they look to try to excoriate God rather than to understand him. Uh, so find the puzzle pieces that are there. Get to know your maker and savior. This being who did all this for us would have done it just for you alone. And I just imagine, can you imagine the smartest, most powerful, most caring, most loving being in the whole universe wants to know you personally, wants you to talk with him. He wants to be your friend. He wants to know you. This is one way he communicates the Bible's the word of God, and it's active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I know because reading it through over and over again in my many years of life, every time I go through, it says new things to me. Same exact words, same exact Bible, new words. And I swear I've never read that before, and I have, because I know it's the same Bible, but it'll jump out at you, you know, and and that'll make you think of something else. Oh, that reminds me of this. And, you know, at times I've had my five my finger in five different places in the Bible trying, oh, this reminds me of that, and, you know, read the Bible to communicate with this God who wants to communicate with you. Find your mission and purpose through reading and prayer. And also allow yourself to be disciplined and corrected. The Bible does that. (laughs) It'll start pointing out, hey, too critical, too angry, too lazy, too whatever, (laughs) too mean. So this is just a little letter that I think Ellen White wrote to one of her sons. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. You will have a conflict to be right. I don't command you to read the Bible. I never shall. I want you to read the Bible because you love it. Not because you're driven to it, for it will be an unpleasant task. But if you neglect the reading of the Bible, you will lose your love for it. Those who love the word of God are those who read it the most. And by reading and searching out scripture references, you'll see a chain of truth. And see the new beauties in the word of God. While you make the scriptures more your study and become more familiar with them, you'll be better fortified against the temptations of Satan. And when inclined to speak or act wrong, some scripture will come and arrest you (laughs) and turn you right. It's not natural for the heart to love the Bible. But when it's renewed by grace, then the mind will feast upon the rich truths and promises contained in the word of God. And I say a hearty amen to that. Because the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. In Jesus' name, we pray that you will make these, the Bible, the words in them come true. Make us long and thirst to communicate with you and appreciate you and get to know you. And then follow your words and our mission. And don't let anything, not anything, not business, not home, not politics, not entertainment, not anything, keep us from our mission. We are so close to the end of time, so close. And and Jesus, of course, we could die any day, so our end of time could be today, for all we know. 
Help us not to be distracted by this world, but to stay on task like you did. Because you stayed on mission and didn't change your mind, and you went through all this misery for us in the crucible, that allows us to respond to you and give us the freedom to get off this place and get out of here alive and help us to bring as many people along with us as we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.